Let's read together Genesis 1, 14 through 25 and hear what the Lord has to say to us today. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we live in this world that you've made God, that you made with your voice, you made by speaking what should be, and it was so. God, I ask that you would speak over us today what should be of us, and let it be so. God, let it be done. Let your will be done in us as it is in heaven. God, we give you our time and ask that you would teach us and that we would hear your word and your voice and what your spirit has to say to us in these things. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I came across an article recently, uh, it was kind of funny, about all of the ways that Australia is trying to kill us. Have you seen these lists of all of the, the animals and things in Australia that are just so lethal? Um, Australia is home to several of the most deadly animals of their kind. They are the home of the deadliest snake in the world. They are the home of the deadliest spider in the world. Uh, They are home of the, the, the deadliest bird in the world, believe it or not. I didn't know there were birds that were deadly, but apparently the cassowary is nothing to be trifled with. They are also the home of the world's deadliest fish, the world's deadliest jellyfish, the world's deadliest octopus, and even the world's deadliest snail. The cone snail has a tongue that's like a harpoon and fills your body full of neurotoxins. And the Lord saw all that he had made and behold, it was good. Do you ever look at the world and see something in the world and go, God, really? Good? That thing is good? We have to ask, what does this mean? What does it mean for something that God makes to be good? This word good 
Usually when we hear it, when we use it, it refers to something that has some benefit to us, either personally or to humanity or something that affects us, it's relevant to us, or it has some moral quality like, oh, you're, you are a good person or, you know, what have you. But neither of these would be obvious to us concerning mosquitoes, right? Really, God? Mosquitoes? I actually learned this this week that mosquitoes are actually pollinators like bees. Uh, They actually do serve a purpose other than being little messengers from Satan. Uh, That's that's your science lesson for the week. Uh, Mosquitoes are pollinators. So what does it mean to be good? Well, we can ask the opposite question and it's helpful. What would it mean for something to be not good? So John Walton in his commentary on Genesis identifies that there is something in creation before the fall that God says is not good. It is not good that the man should be alone. Why would it be not good for the man to be alone? Well, it's because apart from woman, man cannot fulfill the responsibilities that God has given humanity to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And so if humanity was designed to accomplish this purpose according to God's will, and humanity is not able to do that apart from the creation of woman, then it is not good for the man to be alone. He cannot fulfill his purpose. Therefore, something that is not able to function as designed by God would be not good. So then what's the opposite? Something that is good is something that is able to function as designed by God. This world that God has made is able at creation to function as designed. And this is incredible to me because I start a lot of projects. I don't know, maybe you are like, maybe you start a lot of projects. I don't finish as many projects as I start. Mostly because by the time I get a certain way into the project, I can tell that it is not going to be completed the way I intended for it to be completed. It is not going to look as I designed or it is not going to function as I designed. I don't have that kind of ability in this project. And I think this is a sign of God's true brilliance that 100% of what he intended to function, the way he intended it to function in creation is actually exactly as he planned. He makes the world to his exact specifications. There is nothing about his world that is one iota different than his vision before he started. He makes the world to his exact specifications. He makes light and dark and he calls them good. He makes the sky and the sea and the land and he calls them good. And now he makes the sun and the moon, the stars, the planetary bodies, as well as all of the wildlife, including everything in Australia. And he calls it good. He calls it good. And so what I want us to see first in this text is that all of creation is good. All of creation, all that God has made, he created good. Now, it's easy to think of of certain things in creation this way, um, like the sun and the moon and the stars. 
right? The sun warms the earth. The sun uh, gives light upon the earth. The sun is the power of photosynthesis so that plants can survive and, and therefore become food to the animals of the earth. We can see that sun, the sun is not just a source of light, but it's a, a source of life in the world. It's good. The moon, likewise, it gives light on the earth at night so that humans who can't see in the night can still function. It provides safety in that way because if we can see a, a, a threat coming, we're, we're safe. And so the moon is good. And the stars, the stars have been a roadmap, the traveler's map for centuries. I was reading about Charles Lindbergh, who as he was flying over the Atlantic, he had no landmarks, no anything to judge where he was, but he could navigate himself just by the stars and land at a precise destination just outside of Paris where he intended to be. These things are, are easy. It's easy to see these things and know that they are good. But what about some of the other things in the created world? See, in day five of creation, God makes the birds of the heavens and he makes the fish of the sea. And he says that they're good. And, and it's not surprising that they're good. You know, day one, day two, day three of creation, we've heard this phrase over and over and over again, that God speaks something, he forms something, he calls it good. So it's not surprising that we would hear that the fish in the sea and the birds of the heavens are good. But what is surprising is what creatures are listed in day five. I want us to look specifically at the phrase that the ESV translates, great sea creatures. What do you think about when you think of great sea creatures? I think of sharks, like right away sharks. It's the thing that keeps me on land, right? The whales and, and the shark. Look, I'm really trying hard to surf, but I'm still so afraid of sharks, they are the great sea creatures, whales and sharks. And then there's like, there's like speculation that Megalodon is still a thing. Like, you know, and then there's the giant squid. Like there are so many reasons to not go in the water. But that's not what the ancient people would think about when they heard this term, great sea creatures. See, they would have thought of something else. The Hebrew word here translated great sea creatures is tananim. And tananim shows up in a variety of different places in scripture. It's a significant word. There's lots of things that are called tananim. Uh, snakes are called tananim. Um, in fact, when Moses throws his staff down in front of Pharaoh, his staff turns into a tananim. Um, and so uh, it's often translated snake, but that same word tananim is sometimes translated crocodile. Wouldn't that be different? If Charlton Heston threw down his staff in front of Pharaoh and it turned into a crocodile. The Ten Commandments would be a very different movie. Pharaoh himself is referred to as a tananim poetically in, in scripture. Most significantly, the surrounding cultures would hear this word and understand it to refer to the chaos monsters believed to live in the ocean. See, these creatures are called tananim, like the mythical chaos dragon serpent uh, uh, Leviathan. If you've seen or read about Leviathan in scripture or in ancient folklore. It's this multi-headed 
It's a, it's a sea monster. It's a, it's a, it's a water dragon. Leviathan is referred to as Tananim in scripture. And so Tananim were the enemies of creation under the control of the gods of the sea deployed against creation to keep humanity in its domain. The reason humans didn't, weren't, weren't seafaring people was because there's Tananim out there. Not just great whites, there are dragons. There are these crazy chaos creatures in these ancient mythologies. And so it's a very interesting word to be used in the biblical text that God is saying, everything out there is under my control. Everything out there was made by me. It doesn't matter what the other cultures around you talk about being out there. Everything out there was made by me. Everything out there is good. Everything out there works according to God's design. So we also see this in day six with various categories of land animals. The, the, the livestock, these are the domesticated animals, flocks and herds and cattle and sheep and goats and all of these different things. And then we have the creeping things. And the creeping things are the smaller animals and insects and other things that crawl close to the ground. But then there's the beasts of the earth. Right? The beasts of the earth are the wild animals. Right? The dangerous things that kept people in cities from wandering too far into the wilderness where there are lions and tigers and Bigfoots. They keep them safe in the city. We don't go out there. There's beasts of the earth out there. They're dangerous. And God says everything that is out there, whatever could be out there, I have made and I have called good. See, there's nothing in this world, no matter how scary or how threatening, that is not under the absolute power of God. Nothing that he cannot use for his purposes. Nothing that he cannot use according to his design. All that God has made is good. But humans have this tendency. As humans, we have this tendency to take the good things that God has made and corrupt them. We take these, these good things that God has made and we turn them into false gods. In the ancient world, the aspects of creation that were most likely to be worshipped as gods are the things in creation that hold the most power over life and death. And so the sun, the moon, and the stars are of significant importance. Without the sun, we die. And so it's a very powerful good in the universe. And so the ancient peoples would serve whatever power is behind the, the sun in order to, uh, to, to receive its favor. And so things with power for good and uh, for life and, and death were, were often uh, tempt, people were tempted to worship these things. And so the ancients believed that the sun and moon didn't merely show the passing of time in days and years and seasons, but they believed that there was a God in control of the sun and the moon. 
and that the God is the one that controlled the passing of days and years and seasons. And so the, the, and likewise with the stars, they believe that the stars were, the constellations were deities. And as they looked at these, these constellations, these deities, uh, uh, you know, move throughout the heavens and the planetary, the planets that didn't seem to, they didn't move the same way as the rest of the sky did. And so they started to observe that these are gods at, at work. And so how they are moving up there will actually determine our fate and our fortune today. This is how astrology was born, looking to the heavens, looking to the constellations and trying to discern what is going to take place in our lives on earth. But check this out. The Bible's teaching us something here. Often the Bible teaches us what is significant through repetition. We see this in the creation account. God speaks, God speaks, God speaks. And then God separates and he forms and he establishes boundaries, all of these things. And then God names the thing that he made and then he calls it good. Through repetition, we learn that some of these things are significant. We've been talking about these throughout um, our time in, in Genesis. But another way the Bible teaches us uh, is not only by repeating a word, but repeating a word and a phrase and then suddenly leaving it absent. And we go, wait, I was expecting God to say this, and he didn't. What is going on there? And so until day four of creation, everything God makes, he names. Everything God makes, he names. Day and night, heaven and the sea and the earth all get names when they were made. But then he makes the great lights, and he calls them the greater light and the lesser light. The sun and moon don't even get a name. We would expect that he would make the great lights and the greater light he called the sun and the lesser light he called the moon, but that's not what he does. That's what we would expect and that's not what he does. And so we need to ask what in the world is going on here? He calls them nothing. And so what we need to see is that what the text is teaching us is that all of creation is good, but none of creation is God. None of creation is God. Listen to what John Walton says in his commentary. He says, the Hebrew words for sun and moon also served as the names of deities connected with the sun and moon in the neighboring cultures. By refraining from the use of those names, the author has left no room for the idea that gods were being brought into existence. See, to give the sun and moon a name that was associated with a deity in the surrounding culture would be to potentially personify the sun and moon and turn it into something that people would try to relate to and serve and appease and turn into a false God. God makes them, they're good, but they are not God. The sun and moon are not gods. They are made by God to show us something about himself. And so God expects that we would enjoy the sun and the moon and the stars, they're gifts from him. And as gifts from him, they bring God glory and they bring good things to the world. But as we receive those good things, that should inspire us to look to the giver 
It's, it's how frustrating is it to give a gift to someone and they open it up and they're like, this is amazing. And they run away and do whatever with it and don't come back to say, thank you. It doesn't actually like invest into the relationship in the way that you intended to invest it in. This is a, a, a parent's every Christmas. And so God gives the good gifts so that we would turn back and, and worship God and, and give God thanks for this thing that he has made. But all a while, all the while, it was a, it was a source. Uh, it was a good thing, but God is the source of that good thing. See, we were made to experience the goodness of creation and respond in worship. And yet human history has shown that time and time again, we turn away from God. We receive the good things. We want good things from God but we don't actually let them be the conduit to experiencing God as the giver of all good things. We're so focused on receiving the material thing itself or the experience itself, the pleasure itself, and we don't let it turn our eyes back to God and give him praise. And this is called idolatry. This is what the Bible calls idolatry. It's worshiping a false God. An idol is a God substitute, a created thing that we give power over us. It doesn't have power, but we give it power by serving it and fearing it and desiring it and longing for it. It begins to have power in our lives. An idol doesn't have to be the statue of a deity on a mantelpiece. It can be Uh, a shiny rock around your neck. Crystals are ridiculous. And yet people are so fascinated by them and think that they have this this power. I was at a coffee shop once and I heard these ladies talking to each other about their yoga class and they were trying to convince their friend to come to a yoga class. And finally the friend, you know, consented. She's like, all right, I'll go. And the first thing they said was, do you have any crystals? Bring all your crystals. And I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, why is stretching with rocks on your mat better than just stretching in general? It sounds more, it sounds less comfortable, you know? And so just, people just fascinated by these things. And the reason these are idolatrous, the reason that these have potential for damage in our lives is because when we're anxious or when we're stressed, when we need consoling, when we need comfort, I have to go get my crystals. And it distracts us from turning our attention to God. Now, look, crystals are amazing. They're beautiful. And like the way time and pressure and heat and carbon, all these things like make these things. It's, it's, it's amazing. They're pretty. They're gorgeous. They're, 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 they're good. We don't need to like see crystals and then like, like stamp them out and crush them like sinister little thing. But we also don't have to give it power. We don't have to give them power over us. And so an idol is anything that turns, uh, that takes our attention and we put our attention onto it in times of trouble or, or when we should turn to God, we turn to this lesser thing. It's anything that we turn to for safety and security and satisfaction instead of turning to God. It doesn't matter if God made it and it's good. If we use it as a God replacement, it becomes dangerous becomes an idol. Doesn't also need to be a material thing, idols. It can be work. 
Um, it can be reputation. It can be status. Um, it can be a particular person. That I am okay because this person loves me. If this person no longer loves me, then I'm no longer okay. It can be your family. Family is good. Love your family. It's a gift from God. But if you are not okay because your family is not okay, then you need to know that there is satisfaction, there is joy, there is comfort available in Christ that is not available in your family. And if you try to get it out of your family, you will crush your family. You can turn good things that God has made into false gods. They distract us from the goodness that we're supposed to receive in Christ himself. Now, we may not call these things gods, but we give them godlike power every time we see something as a source of the good in our life or a solution for the pain in our life instead of receiving them as a gift from God who is himself the source of life. So when you're down, right? When you're down and you're frustrated, when you're anxious, when you're sad, where do you turn? What do you turn to in those moments? Um, do you see money as the thing that can solve all of your problems? Um, or, or romance, sex as the thing that will make you feel loved when you aren't feeling necessarily accepted or when you're feeling down about yourself? Do you turn to substances? Do you turn to a new toy to distract you? What is it? What is the thing that your heart goes to when something doesn't feel right in your life? It's an idol. See, it's a, we're, we're on this search. We're on this quest to find something to satisfy us, something good. And so often we turn to things apart from God and it only causes that rift that exists between us and God to widen. We end up in, in worse shape than we did before. And it's easy to do this because material things and, and immediate uh, circumstances, I can say that word, and pleasures have this power of immediate gratification. I'm sad. This will make me happy. I'm anxious. This will bring me peace. I'm stressed. I know what to do. I can go to that thing and it will help. And if we go to those things, instead of turning to God, we might have this immediate gratification, but once it's over, we're just a little less well. It's like trying to satisfy thirst by drinking seawater. You might think you're doing something good, but it's only going to kill you faster. It's only going to damage you more. We're all searching for something good. We're searching for something beautiful. We're searching for something to satisfy the longing, something with power to give us life, but nothing in all of creation, in all the world, nothing. You will never find anything that God has made as good as it is that can actually satisfy us because we were made to be satisfied in Christ alone. In Jesus, we have the greatest good imaginable. He's surprisingly good. He's shockingly good. 
He is the source of all good things in life. He's the maker of heaven and earth. The gospel of John says that he made all things. All things were made by him and for him. And apart from him, not anything was made that was made. That Jesus is the word that is spoken at creation. The gospel of John says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the life that we are longing for. And if we want to live the good life, if we want to live the good life, it must be a life that works according to God's design. Like all of the things that he made that function exactly as God intended. If we want to live the good life, it must be lived in communion with God. That's what we were made for. If we want to live the good life, it must be lived with God himself as preeminent in our lives, sitting on the throne of our lives, because that's what we were made for, to serve him, to worship him alone, and to have communion with him, to be his people, and for him to be our God. And until we have that until we experience God as our greatest good. We will always be restless. We will always be looking for something to satisfy. As Augustine once wrote, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Do you feel restless today? Do you feel restless in life? Are you looking for something that will bring you that peace? You were made for intimacy with God. You were made for communion with God. But our sin, our idolatry, our pursuit of these false things, they separate us from God. And the surprising thing about Jesus is not that he accomplishes reconciliation. The surprising thing about Jesus is not that he is able to bring reconciliation between us and God. The surprising thing about Jesus is how he accomplishes reconciliation. See, Jesus doesn't accomplish the good in our lives by seeking the things that we often seek. He doesn't do it by power. He doesn't do it by wealth. He doesn't do it by status. He doesn't do it by human wisdom or by, you know, uh, being in control of everything in his life. He doesn't do it in, in any of these ways. He doesn't do it in any of the ways that we turn to, but he accomplishes the reconciliation. He accomplishes the intimacy that we are longing for, whether we know it or not. He accomplishes it through weakness, through sacrifice, and through death to remove the penalty of our idolatry and restore us to God. Jesus is surprisingly good. But this is my fear. For many people who call themselves Christians, Jesus is the source of a good future only. That Jesus is my ticket to heaven. That I believe, and so one day I'm going to be in heaven, but until then, life is hard, I'm miserable. And I just need to find something to take the edge off until I get to the place that I really want to go. And so the Jesus that we have faith in is for our future good only. And we don't actually acknowledge or believe that he's good for us today. 
Jesus said, I came to give you life and life abundantly. That abundant life doesn't begin when you die. It begins now when you accept that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He came to give you abundant life and abundant life today. And some of you know that and you're resting in that truth and praise God for the peace and the joy that you experience in knowing that Jesus is yours today, that abundant life is yours today. But many of us struggle to move that intellectual truth deep down into our hearts and fully realize it, experience the goodness of it. And maybe we believe, but we're still wondering, is this true? Can this really be true? This sounds too good to be true. I know this world. I've experienced this world and it's hard. It's brutal. It's heartbreaking. How does faith in Jesus actually accomplish good for me today? Heaven is enough. It's enough to look forward to that. But listen, the only reason eternity is glorious is because Jesus is there. And he's here too. He's here now. He's available today to allow you and empower you to experience abundant life today. For whatever problems you have, for whatever issues you're facing, for whatever fear just won't quit, Jesus is better than money. Jesus is better than romance. Jesus is better than status or influence. Jesus is better than you getting your own way. Jesus is better than all of the good things this world has to offer. Could it be true? Yes, he is. He is better. Jesus is good. He is surprisingly good. He's shockingly good. He is better than you have been told. Jesus is good but most of us have our hands so full of good things that we are not willing to let go of, that we can't for a moment open our hands to receive Jesus without letting these things fall to the ground and we see it as death. I can't lose that thing. No, I'm gonna cling to that thing. I know that Jesus is better, but I can't possibly take my hands off of wealth or my career or my status or whatever else it is. And so we don't actually receive the good things that he has for us today. See, following Jesus doesn't mean that we add him to a list of good things. Don't hear me saying that there's all kinds of good things to fill our lives with, but you'll never really enjoy it unless you add Jesus too. That's not what I'm saying. It's not Jesus also. It's Jesus only. I heard it. It's Jesus only. Only we need to let go of the rest of the world. We don't need to reject the good things as being evil, but we do have to stop living for them. We have to stop living like they have power to give us what we truly need. They can never satisfy. They're salt water when we're dying for thirst. So then what do we do? Jesus said, for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The only way to find true satisfaction and true peace in this world is to stop trying to find it in the world and look to Christ alone. 
if we die to this world, if we die even to the good things in this world, our hearts will be open and free of clutter to experience God in a new way. If we try to live our lives for these things, we will lose our lives. But if we die to these things, our life will truly begin. And the good life is only available when we function as designed. And that life is communion with God in Christ. Everything else in this world, no matter how good, if it is not God, it cannot give you what you were made for and actually interferes with what you were made for. And so we need to let go of it. And you know what? It'll probably, for most of us, it'll feel like death for a while. Letting go of our idols feels like death, but it is the death of your idol. It is not the death of you. You are only beginning to live. And Jesus has shown us the way in this. Okay, ultimately, we follow what Christ has done in this, what he has done for us. Though all things were made by him, all things were made for him. He willingly died to this world to give us the life that we were dying to find. And he is the power that we need to finally let go of everything else. And only when we trust that Jesus is better than all the world can offer, then we will have the ability to let go of the things that were never meant to satisfy. And this is the most surprising thing about all of this. The most surprising thing about all of it, this is this. When we die to self and die to the things of the world and refuse to use the things of the world to satisfy us, it has the surprising effect. The world shines a little more brightly than we thought it did. The sun, the moon, and the stars, when they are put in their proper place, we experience them with a new kind of goodness that we didn't experience before because we were trying to just take them for what they were worth without letting them point us to God. And I'm not talking only about the sun, moon, and stars. I'm talking about all of creation. Only when we stop looking to the good things in creation to satisfy us will we begin to experience their true goodness. Several years ago, I quit eating sugar. And not just like sweet things, like any processed thing with added sugar. I stopped eating fruit. I stopped eating the things that turned to sugar in my body. I stopped eating sugar. And it had two surprising effects. Well, really three. First, I felt miserable for a few days. Just felt awful. But after a few days, I felt amazing. As my body was no longer addicted to this, this sugar is a drug, people. <laughs> you are being poisoned. I felt amazing. I felt so much better once this thing was out of my system, the idol of sugar, out of my system. But the craziest thing was how much sweeter everything in the world tasted. I remember eating a Brussels sprout and going, when in the world did this get sweet? This is like bitter awfulness and it's, del it's delicious. It has this sweetness to it. When we get rid of the idols in our lives that we think are so great, but only a pale substitute to the real thing, then even those things, those good things 
taste sweeter, shine brighter, delight us more uh, uh, joyfully because they're no longer God, but they're good. When God is God and good is good, life will truly flourish. Only when we stop looking to the things in creation to satisfy us, will we begin to experience their true goodness because it points us to the one who made it and gave it to this world as a gift. When Jesus is your greatest treasure, it will not decrease your enjoyment of the world. It will fulfill it. It will fulfill your enjoyment of the world. It puts the world in its place so that we can enjoy it in Christ. Church, Jesus is supremely good, amen? He wants to show you how good he is today. Will you let him? By opening your hands, laying down your idols, and receiving Jesus as surprisingly good, shockingly good, supremely good. Let go of all the other things and experience the true goodness of Christ today. Heavenly Father, I just want to pray now for those who are here, who maybe they believe and are wrestling with these things in their lives that they are pursuing in, in, in greater satisfaction than Christ. Maybe there are people here who don't believe and their, their fear in coming to you is because they are afraid that you're going to take all these things from them and who will they be without this? What if I come to Jesus and he takes this from me? God, it is true that you take things out of our lives that are not good for us. And we might not know what those are. But God, we do know what you have given us. You've given us your son. You've given us your life. You've given us your righteousness. You've given us your holiness, your peace, your love, your joy. And so God, I pray that even in the quietness of our hearts, we would even say these words, God, I lay down my idols. Name it. Whatever that idol is, name it in your heart. Lord, I lay it down. And we ask that you would fill that place that is only meant to belong to you. God, we lay it all down for your glory. We pray now that you would even stir up in us a heart of worship, expectant worship, because we know and believe that you and you alone are good. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.